Hello and welcome to the Revive Church podcast with Pastor Todd Mazingo. I'm your host, Paul Garner. Thank you for listening today. There are nine prophetesses called out in the Bible. Deborah is named in Judges as one of these and also a judge over Israel. She was not a traveling prophetess seeking followers. Judges 3 tells us that she stayed in one place near Ramah and Bethlehem. People came to her seeking her judgment because she heard from God. She heard from God and told the leader Barak to raise up 10,000 men to go up against their enemy and God would give them into his hands. Barak honored her, calling on her to join him in the battle. Deborah was honored by God as he spoke through her to judge and lead his people. Pastor Todd teaches us about a powerful woman of God who was second to none. How does God feel about women in leadership? This is the message we all need to hear to understand how God answers that question. Are you ready to get into it? Be sure to listen to the end for some important information. Y'all ready to get into it? All right, this morning we're continuing in our series called So Can You. If characters in the Bible were uh, moved and motivated and empowered by God, he's the same God that you have, so if they can do it, so can you. And this morning we're going to be talk about a particular person in the Bible named Deborah. Deborah, Deborah in the book of Judges chapter 4. We're going to have fun with this, y'all ready? Judges chapter 4, verse 1. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Ehud was the previous judge. I just want to make a quick point here about how you can learn so much from Old Testament Scripture if you get how to interpret it. What's happening here is the sons of Israel are doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Judges 2.11, the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Judges 3.7, the sons did evil in the sight of the Lord. Judges 3.12, now the sons of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. Judges 4.11, then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Judges 6.1, then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. 72 to go, hang on. Judges 10.6, then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Finally, Judges 13.1, now the sons of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. So guess what? Even that many thousands of years ago, they were still taken out by the enemy. There was still evil that was done in the children of God. But what do I learn from that? I learn from that that every single time it says that in the book of Judges, the next line is the same. The next line will say, so the Lord gave them into the hands, into the hands of whoever the enemy king was, into the hands of whoever the conquering army was. Verse two of four, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar, and the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Agamim. Trust me, that's exactly how you say that. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and watch, he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Don't Don't miss putting these together. The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. He oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Israel does evil. They become oppressed 
by the enemy for 20 years. They are still children of God. He is still watching out for them. He is still directing their future. But because they did evil, they find out what it's like to be oppressed by an enemy king. Are you with me? This explains what's going on in the Christian walk. We are still his child, but we will suffer the consequences of wanting another God. Ooh, let me say that again. We will suffer the consequences of wanting another God. While we are sinful, we are oppressed by the enemy. Catch the word, not possessed by the enemy, oppressed by the enemy. In other words, I'm still a child of God, but if I want to put my foot back into the enemy's camp, I get the death and destruction and darkness that comes with the enemy's camp, and I will be oppressed by that enemy. Let's go on, verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, wife of Lipidoth, was judging Israel at the time. Don't miss this. Deborah, female, is a prophetess. A prophetess is one of the five-fold ministries that Christ gave to the church. And in that, they were never gender-specific. Ooh, firing some people up. Let's start back in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them, everybody say them, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. Everybody say them. Say it again so I can get another drink. God blessed them, male and female, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I don't know if you saw it, but both men and women are created in the image of God, and he told them, both men and women, to subdue the earth and to rule over it. Are you with me? Some of you are not, but it's okay. Just hang in there. Do you know that there are nine prophetesses called out in Scripture? Nine. Exodus 5.20, Miriam, sister of Moses, a prophet. Judges 4.4, Deborah, that we're reading about. 2 Kings 22.12, Huldah, the wife of Shalom. Nehemiah 6.14, Nodiah is called out. Isaiah 8.3, many of you don't know this, Isaiah's wife is called out as a prophetess. Luke 2.36, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. And in Acts 21.9, four daughters of Philip the Evangelist, not the apostle, Philip the Evangelist had four daughters that were prophetesses. Why would it be important for us to learn the story about Deborah, who's a prophetess and a judge, and why would it be important that she is a prophet in this case? Because she's judging. So let me ask you, if you want good judgment, do you want someone that hears from God? Yes, so Deborah is a prophetess so that she can hear in God and judge over the people, hear from God. Verse 5, she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah, so popular they named a palm tree after her, between Ramah 
and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. I want to tell you something about Scripture. There is not a single word in Scripture that isn't important to be there. There's not a single word that wasn't put there for a reason. There's not a single word that doesn't have a profound meaning behind it that we have to go look. Did you notice that it said she sat under the palm tree, and it was between Ramah, Bethel, and the country of Ephraim? Now watch this. Of all the cities around here, these were the three that were picked. Rama means a high place or exalted. Bethel means the house of God. And Ephraim means fruitful. So here's the question. Where was Deborah when she sat under the palm tree of Deborah? In an exalted place in the house of God and she was fruitful. Are you with me? Come on. Don't miss this. She's not a traveling prophet trying to get people to listen to her. They come to her. She is a person of prominence and importance. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. We're going to talk more about that later. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Benom from Kadesh Nephtali, and said to him, Behold the Lord, the God of Israel has commanded, go and mount to Mount Tabor, go and march to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Nephtali and the sons of Zebulun. And I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. This is what I want you to see. That here we're getting the instruction from God, a word from God, that Barak will go and fight and that Barak will win. Don't miss this. Barak is told from the beginning he will win. Then Barak said to her, to Deborah, watch this. If you'll go with me, then I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I'll surely go with you. Nonetheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you're about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And most people read this, and you get the impression that somehow Barak is a wimp. Somehow Barak is a wimp, because she says, go to battle, God says you're going to win, and he says, well, I won't go without you. Like, I need you, or I'm afraid if you're not with me. I want you to look at Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11.32 will show you something about Barak. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David, Samuel, and the prophets. Listen to me. There is not a single other Barak called out in Scripture. What he's talking about in Hebrews is the Barak that worked with Deborah. There is no other Barak, but listen to what it said in the list. Who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Barak is listed among those great conquerors in the Bible. So I wonder what's actually happening here when he says... I'll go, but I want you to go with me. Could it be that Barak was actually honoring Deborah? 
Brock was actually saying, I don't want to go to war without the voice of God, and you carry the voice of God, so would you come with me? Because I don't want to be out there without the voice of God. If you look in chapter 5, 12, uh, Judges chapter 4 is the story of this battle and Deborah and Barak and Sisera, and Judges chapter 5 is actually a song. It's a poem that Deborah writes, and this is what Deborah writes in her poem. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake and sing a song. Awake, Barak, and take away your captives, O son of Abinom. In other words, Barak isn't being berated. He's being honored right along with Deborah that he did what he was supposed to do. Could it be that Barak wanted to make sure the word of God was always with him? Because when the day for battle came in verse 14, Deborah says to Barak, Arise, for this is the day which the Lord has given you, Sisera, into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabar with 10,000 men following him. In other words, he took the instruction from the Lord and he went out to do battle. Could it be that Barak is not a wimp, but a strategist? And when the battle is over, here's how this particular battle ends. Sisera is the commander of the army, and their army just gets wiped out, which we'll read about in a minute. And Sisera actually runs, and he runs to the tent of a woman named J.L. And J.L. says, come on in here and hide. You can hide here. And he says, okay, if they come looking for me, don't tell them I'm here. Okay, I'm thirsty. Okay, J.L. gives him some milk to drink. Says, just lie down, take a nap. I know you're worn out. Then she goes and gets a tent peg, puts it on his head, and drives it into the ground. And Jael kills Sisera. Why do I bring this up? Because maybe when Deborah said the glory will go to a woman, she was talking about herself. Or maybe she was talking about Jael. Or maybe she was just telling Barak how this battle's going to end. Do I bring this up in some way to defend Barak so he doesn't look like a wimp? No. No, but I have to believe that if he was actually the wimp in the story, he wouldn't be listed among the great conquerors and the men of faith in the book of Hebrews. So something else had to be going on. But today, I want to talk about Deborah, not Barak. Deborah in Scripture is a challenge to conservative Bible interpreters. Man, if you're one of them, put your feet underneath the seat and just bear with me. I'll get you there. Those who would want to say women should keep silent in the church. Those who would want to say, no, God works through men, not through women. One that would say uh, men are supposed to lead and women are supposed to follow. I say, get over yourself. Because I'll just say it this way. Weak men fear strong women. (laughs) Weak men fear strong women. And listen, you got to know I don't fear strong women if you know my wife. Hey. Like maybe if we just focused more on what we're called to, we wouldn't have to worry about what others are called to. I'll get to it in a minute, I promise you. Deborah is also a poetess, a poetess. Judges 5 is a song that she writes about the entire story of what happens, but there's some nuggets in it I want to show you. It's 31 verses long, so I'm not going to read it to you, but let me summarize it. Verses 1 through 5, she praises God. 
Verses 6 through 11, she talks about the sin of the people that brought about their oppression. Verses 12 through 18, it's a call to battle for the children of Israel. Verses 19 to 23, she talks about the great battle that they had. Verses 24 through 27, she praises Jael for what she did. And verses 38 uh, and uh, 31 through 38, she talks about the enemy who is now defeated. What made Deborah such a strong, godly, prophetic, uh, poetess judge? I got five things, I think. Five things. Number one, she was respected. Deborah was respected. Why? Deborah was respected because she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill of the country of Ephraim, and the sons would come to her for judgment, and she gave, listen to me, she gave wise judgment. Listen to me, wisdom brings respect. Wisdom brings respect, and they came to her to get that wisdom. I don't know about you, but the wisest people in my life are the ones I go to, not the ones that come to me. Oh, you think about it for yourself. The wisest people who you trust are the ones you go to, not the ones who come to you. They went to Deborah. God gives wisdom, and God gives wisdom to the humble. Proverbs 2, 6, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Proverbs eleven two. when pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Listen to me. The wise know that God gives the wisdom. That's why they're humble about their wisdom. Let me say that again. The wise know that God gives the wisdom. That's why they are humble about their wisdom. Wise people are not out trying to proclaim their wisdom. The wise are waiting to be asked. Mm, You're going to get it, I promise. Because if you feel like you need to share your wisdom with everyone, you've lost your humility. Conversely, if you have wisdom, God will send people to you to share it with. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. See, they came to Deborah because they got wisdom from God from Deborah. And Deborah knew where her wisdom came from. Number two, Deborah listened to God. Deborah says, behold, the Lord God of Israel has commanded. She is speaking what she's been told. She recognizes the voice of God, and she recognizes whether it's from her or from God. As believers, hear me out, we must know the difference between our soul and the Spirit of God. Both are speaking to us, and we have to know which is which. The soul will always speak of that which you want, and the spirit will always speak of what God is saying. That's what Scripture tells us, that the spirit only speaks what the spirit is told to speak by God. 
In other words, if I'm hearing it from the Spirit, I know it's from God. If not, it could be from my soul. The soul is part of the flesh. Scripture tells us that flesh and spirit are against one another. Listen, it's not because they can't agree. It's because the soul always wants what's best for you, and the Spirit always wants you to hear from God. That's why they fight against the other because the soul is saying, don't take the risk. Don't take the chance. There's no reason to. You could make a fool out of God. Just sit back. And the spirit is saying, if you would just lay hands on her, she'd be healed. People will often claim that it's God when it's really just them getting what they want. (laughs) Have you ever known someone that is fulfilling a fleshly desire and claiming it's from God? Let me tell you about something about those people. Most of them don't know it's not from God. Most of them don't know that what they're saying they want is not from God when they say it is. Let me show you. In Jeremiah 23, 25, it says this. I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream. I had a dream. How long? Is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsely? Now watch. Here's where it all comes together. Even those prophets of the deception of their own heart who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which they relate to one another, just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal. This is what that just said. They were deceived in their heart when they prophesied. I had this dream. This dream is from God. I need to tell you this dream is from God. This dream is not from God. They're deceived into believing that dream. Is that not a scary thing? It's a scary thing for me, this whole conversation of am I getting something from my soul or am I getting something from my spirit? Because Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart, which is the soul, is more deceitful than all else. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's who I want to listen to. My soul that's desperately sick and I can't even understand it and it deceives me. What do you do with that? How do you deal with this problem of deception happening from your soul? Hebrews 4.12 The word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit. If you want to know how to divide what's in your soul from what's in your spirit, you use the word of God. Oh, you think I'm talking ethereally because when you go into this scripture, the word word for word of God is logos. That's the character. That's what's already recorded. It's what's already known about God. The rhema is the currently speaking word, right? But the logos is what we already know about God. The scripture is not saying you will know what's from the soul and what's from the spirit because God will tell you now currently. It is saying you should know what's the soul and the spirit because you have learned from the logos what the character of God is. Uh, We'll get there, I promise you. We're saying, I have to understand and know God from his word, from what we know about God, from the character of God. I can't tell you how often somebody's come to me and said, well, I've met this woman, 
And I believe God is telling me to leave my wife and to go be joined to her. And I'm like, you are kidding me, right? Use the word of God. His character hates divorce. So what are you doing? How could you believe that was a word from God? We have to know the word of God. We have to understand the character of God. I am not saying you can go cherry pick a scripture to meet anything you want to make sure it meets up with God. What I'm saying is when you get yourself into the word, when you study God, when you study his actions and his character and what he's doing, then you can begin to understand how does he think so when the word comes to me, I know whether that's from him or not. I've used this example many times before. But if you look at the word of God as being just the Bible and just understanding what's already occurred, you would take the day of Pentecost and all of these would be in this upper room and the sound of a mighty rushing wind would happen and fire would come and it would land on each of the disciples and one of them would have stood up and said, this is not from God. I've never seen that in the word before. So since it's not in the word, it's never happened to a prophet, never happened to a psalmist, didn't happen to Moses. This can't be of God. No, because they knew the character of God that he works in fire, that he demonstrates himself in power. They knew that God so that they knew this is from him. We have to be that same way about knowing our God so that we know when a word comes to us, is this coming out of my soul? Or is this coming from the very spirit of God? True, I'll get off that. Number three, number three thing about Deborah. She knew who she was speaking for. She knew who she was speaking for. Let me tell you, there is nothing more intimidating than speaking for God. Nothing more intimidating. It is an awesome responsibility that should never be taken lightly, never be taken for show, never be taken for public acclaim. The word of God and distributing and dispensing the word of God is an awesome responsibility. So awesome that James says this about it. Let not many of you become teachers. And he's not talking about a classroom where you've got a title. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such will incur a stricter judgment. Why does he say that? Because in verse 2 he says, because we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's perfect. He's able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they'll obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, whatever the inclination of the pilot desires. Let me say that again. A small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. So why does he say, let not many of you become teachers? It's because if you read Scripture and you misinterpret Scripture, you have messed yourself up. But if I read scripture and I teach it to you, I'm in directing an entire body in Christ. It's an awesome responsibility to think I will be personally held accountable for what I teach you. Therefore, let not many of you become teachers because the responsibility is too awesome. But here's the beauty of the system. 
All those people that want to have a Bible study at their home don't think about the awesomeness of the double judgment, of the stricter judgment. They just want the acclaim of being the teacher in their home Bible study. But Ephesians 4 tells us how we deal with this. And he gave some, Jesus, to be apostles, some as prophets, Deborah, some as evangelists, some as pastors, and some as teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of Christ. Why does he give teachers to the body? Because he wants the saints equipped. I say this kindly and affectionately. Do not take a role you were not appointed for. Because you will incur a stricter judgment. Do not take the role you are not appointed for. The damage can be great and the repercussions for you are serious. But isn't it a joy? I think this is the coolest part of this whole conversation that Jesus selects people and says, I will give you revelation and insight. You can direct the many. Two of you are excited about that. Jesus may place you in the opportunity to receive understanding and revelation of the word because he wants you to teach it to others. That's a beautiful thing. And in this room right now, in this room, there are people that Jesus plans to use to teach the word. And he would not appoint you if he does not support you. He will have your back. He will give you revelation. He will teach you understanding. He will give you an audience. And you'll get everything you need to be called to teach. That's why he's appointing teachers. Number four about Deborah. She trusted God's word and therefore act on it. She trusted God's word and therefore acted on it. I think of a guy like Moses. And I, you know, Moses has so many stories surrounding him. But if you look at Moses from the very beginning, God's telling him, I want you to go back and I want you to free my people. And four times he tells God, I really don't want to do that. I'm, I'm really not interested in doing that. I can't talk right. Uh, they'll kill me. I, I'm not interested in doing that. At one point in his journey, Moses goes to God and says, would you just do me a favor and kill me? I don't want to leave these people anymore. I'm done. At another point, he goes to God and says, no, 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 don't kill the people. Your word is supposed to be good. We don't want everybody thinking our God killed all their people. So don't, here's what I'm saying. There always seemed to be this back and forth between Moses and God. Like he wasn't always sure. He wanted to argue. He didn't didn't want the jobs. It goes back. I don't see that in Deborah at all. I don't see it in Deborah at all. She heard the word and she gave actions, directions based on that word. Deborah is faith-based and knows God. If you look in Judges chapter 5 in this song that she wrote, she refers to herself as a mother in Israel. Listen to this. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted and the travelers went by roundabout ways. The pleasantries ceased. They ceased in Israel. She's talking about the fact nobody wants to come to Israel. It's a desolate place. It's in problems. It's underneath. Until I, Deborah arose, until I, a mother of Israel. Now, when I first read that, I thought, well, that's kind of conceited. 
That's kind of conceited. And then I looked up the word that she used in the poem in the Hebrew, and it's the word aim, aim, just like aiming, aim. But the definition of that word is a parent who cares for people. In other words, what Deborah is saying, I arose a parent who would care for the people. It shows her heart that she did not say, I arose a ruler. I arose a judge. I arose a prophetess in the land. No, she says, I arose as somebody who cared about the people. I cared. It speaks of her heart. She was unafraid. She had no problem when Barack said, I'll go, but you got to come with me. Okay. All right, I'll go with you. I'm not afraid to go to battle with you. She's totally comfortable giving direction to send 10,000 men into battle. She writes a song and a poem that we're still reading today, 2,000 years later. She is secure in who she is and is following God's word for her life, and she's not trying to be anybody else. I love this woman. She has just got it. She is in command. She's in control. She's hearing from the Lord. She's doing what she's called to do. And she's getting a tremendous amount of respect for it. Number five, Deborah had no fear of the enemy. In Judges 4, 3, it says, The sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron, Jabin, and he had oppressed them for 20 years. Listen, Deborah is alive during the 20-year oppression. She knows they have been oppressed for 20 years. I just want you to think about that time span and all the conversation that must have gone on about when are we ever going to get out of this thing. They've got 900 iron chariots. They can come and crush us like a bug at any time. We don't know what to do. She knows all of that. And yet when the day comes and it's time for the battle, this is what she says in Judges 12, 4, uh, 4, 12. Then they told Sisera and Barak, the son of Abinam, had gone to Mount Tabor. Sisera called together all of his chariots, 900 iron chariots and all of the people who were with him from Hirosheth Hegoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah says to Barak, arise, go. This is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. This is a fearless woman. This is a fearless person who says, it's showtime. We're here. It's time for the battle. He told us to go fight. They brought down their 900 chariots. They brought down all their battle. And Deborah is standing there saying, come on. It's time. Let's go. This is the day. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Now watch this. Critical. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his armies with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagoim. And all of the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. What I want you to see in this, Deborah had no fear. Why? Because she knew who was doing the fighting. 
She sends them into battle against a very opposing army who had been oppressing them for 20 years and says, go. And the Lord routed the enemy. The Lord wipes out the enemy. Church, if we could learn that God tells us, go to battle. But when you get there, I, the Lord, will fight your battle for you. There is an enemy today that you are doing battle against, but you have to remember who strengthens your hand. God has no interest in his children failing, but you got to be willing to go to the fight. And when you get there, you got to know that he is with you. Zechariah 4, 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord of Zerubbabel saying, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The lowly spirit will call you to battle. The Holy Spirit will give you armor. The Holy Spirit will instruct you to fight. The Holy Spirit will strengthen your arms, but it's the Holy Spirit that will win the battle for you. Oh, no, I don't think we get this. I think we still try to figure out why we're told, do not fear. 360 times, do not fear. You have nothing to fear. How can you say I have nothing to fear? There's a COVID virus out there. How can you say I have nothing to fear? The government is oppressing us. How can you say I have nothing to fear? My family's falling apart. And he's saying, you have nothing to fear because it's not your fight. It's his fight. It's the Lord's fight. And when we learn that, we will have no fear going to battle. Why would I have fear going to battle if the Lord is going to fight on my behalf? I don't have to worry about that. I don't have to worry about what the enemy's bringing into my family. I can stand firm, and when I've done all that I could do, I just continue to stand, and the Lord does my fighting for me. Stand to your feet, please. I'm going to ask my altar ministers to come forward because I think there's some people here that need to do some business with the Lord this morning. What do I mean by that? What I mean is you are in the middle of a battle and you are fighting an enemy that knows you well. He knows how to attack you. He knows your history. He knows your fears. He knows what's going on. He's seen your circumstances and you're showing fear in front of him. And God is saying, go to battle. Go to war. Go fight. When you get there, I will do the battle. I will fight for you. So I'm asking you this morning, if you're in a fight, if you're in a battle, if you know I feel like I'm losing, I don't know what to do. My family's falling apart. My health is falling apart. We need to go to battle. And we do that with the word of God and with prayer and with confidence. So these folks are up here to pray with you, to listen to me, to let go of your flesh and let the Spirit do what the Spirit is called to do to fight on your behalf. Father God, we trust you. We trust you as Deborah trusted you that it doesn't matter how long we've been oppressed. When the day of deliverance comes, we go to the battle. We go ready to fight. You strengthen our arms. You strengthen us in our soul. You get us ready, and then you take us there, and then you fight on our behalf. What do I have to fear? What do I have to fear if you're going to fight on my behalf? Father God, we love you. We love your love for us. 
And like Deborah, God, we want to be strong. We want to know who we're speaking for. We want to trust in your word. We want the wisdom that only you bring. We want the appointment that you bring. But God, when it comes time to fight, we want the strength to say, I'm backing down and letting the Spirit do battle for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what did you think? Has God been speaking to you about any of these things? We would love to hear from you. You can email us at info at reviveusnow.com. What if, in our attempt to get something from Scripture, we are missing the point of that Scripture? What if in our desire to do better and walk our Christianity more closely in line with Scripture, we are missing what the Scripture is about? Pastor Todd's latest book, Flip the Script, takes a fresh look at what the Scriptures are meant to teach us about the kingdom of God so that application comes from spiritual understanding instead of behavior modifications. This new book is available now on Amazon, Flip the Script. This podcast is brought to you by Revive Church of Stewart, Florida. You can learn more about us at our website, reviveusnow.com. If you would like to support this ministry, go to our website, reviveusnow.com slash give. If you live in our area or are planning a visit to our area, we would love to have you join us. We are located at 8851 Southwest Old Kansas Avenue, Stewart, Florida. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not click to subscribe right here on the podcast site of your choice. That way you won't miss any of Pastor Todd's and Revive Church's future podcasts. Thank you for joining us.